pretty exciting time, isn't it? Another one over the Australians, always pleasing. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm becoming rather a fan of World Cups. Like last year, we, as good as England can really get, we got to the semi-final, glorious failure. We've already won the Cricket World Cup. Is it going to be the Rugby Cup, World Cup this time? Who thinks we're going to win it? Okay, so that's about 10 people. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're, we're thinking about faith in the miraculous today. <laughs> actually, I wish we were, but we're actually thinking about dealing with difference. And I think we have to admit that whilst the sporting world is encouraging right now, the political, political world less so. Okay, so I want to talk about dealing with difference, um, which seems uh, topical, as I've said, but it's also typical. Because actually differences happen all the time, don't they? There's always different opinions about everything. That's just normal. That's part of being human. Issues, situations are complex. And it's good and proper that people form different views. So it's not differences that is the problem. It's division, which I believe or I like to think of as differences gone wrong. We've got it in spades as a nation right now, even if the big picture is not actually that bad. No one has died. No war has been fought. But what we do have, I think we need to be honest and say, is we have an absence of trust. That is almost total. Two sides trying to do the right thing. That much is clear. But with no trust in the other or in their tactics. Carnage and confusion is often the result. But here in this passage that we heard read, we have an alternative, something that can speak into our national malaise and also into all the other situations we face at work, in our families, in church, and in any other groups that we're part of. It presents us with a better way of solving relationship breakdown, which at first sight seems trivial when we actually read this passage in Philippians because it only actually involves two people in a happy church with no obvious problems. Now, we've done Philippians, I know, a few years ago. You may well uh, know it well anyway. And if you do, you'll know that Philippians is probably the happiest book, the happiest letter that Paul wrote. It's full of joy. There's no great heresy going on in Philippi. There's no great immorality. They don't even seem to be really persecuted at all. If there was a model church for everyone to look at, then surely the Philippians would be it. And yet Paul knew that this situation between these two women actually did matter. It did need to be dealt with. He knew the people, and he knew that a disagreement even between just two people in a church, could fester, could escalate, and ultimately could destroy a church. And obviously that matters. That matters a great deal. And the reason for that is the reality of the spiritual battle we as Christians all face. Do you think that? Do you feel aware of the spiritual battle we're in? Well, we can't read even a small amount of the Bible without concluding that that battle is real. It can destroy us, and it can destroy churches. As Peter, in his first letter, put it, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. 
And James at least reassured us that submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so, this dispute between Euodia and Syntyche, if that's how you pronounce them, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, This dispute, the details are sketchy. We don't know exactly what they've fallen out about, but we know that it matters. So I want to pray now that as we look at this together, as we look at what Paul says into that situation, we might be encouraged and equipped to handle differences that we face in our lives, in our churches, and in our nation. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you with this passage in mind. We come before you with our nation in mind. Thank you that you have not left us without hope. Thank you that your word speaks. Thank you there are still many, many people in this nation who pray and trust you. So Lord, might you speak to us. Might you have your hand upon our nation. And might we look back at this difficult time with gladness at how you were there, how you helped us through that tricky period. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, well, as I often do, I've got three uh, principles I want to share with you today, or three steps that Paul leads us through to avoid turning difference into division. And there's no slides this time, sorry about that, but you can remember them because they're nice and simple. The first one actually is remember. We need to remember. And I think the three key verses that uh, Paul gives us as an explanation for what we're to remember are those three words, in the Lord. Not least because he repeats them. First, he exhorts his readers to stand firm in the Lord in verse 1. And then in his specific words to Euodia and Syntyche, he urges them to be of the same mind in the Lord. So what does in the Lord mean? I think it's a reference to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We stand firm in it when we continue to put our faith in it. We don't allow Satan to sow seeds of doubt about whether God really loves us, about whether we really are forgiven. We're to remember that the cross changed everything. Through the cross, the barrier between sinful mankind, that's all of us, and a holy God was destroyed, was removed. And we know that because the resurrection confirmed it. Jesus did that for us. And everything else pales into insignificance alongside that. That's the truth. That's the reality. But we're also to remember what that now means. It means that we are now in him. We are in Jesus. What does that mean? It means we've passed from death to life. We've become his disciples, just like those first 12 that Jesus called at the beginning. We've become his hands and his feet here on earth. That's why the Bible describes us as his body. And yet we're also his bride, called to be spotless as God sees in us what he sees in his perfect son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. The moment we accepted this gift, and if you have, 
accepted that. That's the best, most wonderful decision you could ever have made. But as we accepted this gift, our identity altered. We became dearly loved, adopted children of God, called to be his ambassadors in a hurting and broken world. And this is something we truly need to celebrate. Hence, Paul in verse 4 says, rejoice. And then again, I say, rejoice. Why does he repeat it? Because he knows how important it is. One of the best ways we can remember the truth of what Jesus has done for us is by rejoicing in it. That's why we sing. That's why we look for encouragement by looking at the words of Scripture and remembering what Jesus has done for us. And this is far greater happy news than the supposedly sad news of these two individual believers falling out. I'm sure if they'd known that their falling out would be recorded for the next 2,000 years, they perhaps might have buried the hatchet. But as it is, they serve as an example to us. And let's have faith that God allowed it to happen so that we would be blessed by what we learn from it. And this theological truth of what Jesus has done, when we truly absorb it, should unite us and lighten us. And alongside it, any difference of opinion that we might have really is a small detail, the exception, not the rule. Christians should be united, and we've got very good reasons for being so. But of course, having been redeemed by Jesus dying in our place, also brings great responsibility. Paul is saying, in the light of all this, to quote my wife, as we were chatting about the sermon yesterday, don't sweat the small stuff. Then if you know that phrase, it's basically saying, because we have everything in Christ, we don't need to fall out over the details. And we're called to serve him. There will always be differences of opinion. That's normal. That's life. But what we share is so much more important, and it should steer us through disagreements with respect for each other, with love, and with peace. And so that's why we see Paul here conveying the great respect he has for both Euodia and Syntyche. Women, he tells us, have contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. He describes them as his co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is not faint praise. He knows they're on the same side. He's got so much good stuff that he wants to say about them. The only side that matters is that they are on the side of the Lord. He has respect for their faith and their service. And he's even-handed in the way he responds to their dispute. And yet what he's not doing is diminishing the importance of it. If he thought it would just blow over, give it a few weeks, he probably would have ignored it. But actually, Paul, who knew them both well, instead pleads. What a strong word that is. He pleads with them both to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he pleads with the other readers of the letter to help them. For again, it's not differences between Christians that should concern us unduly, awkward as they sometimes can be. Rather, it's division, which, as I've said already, is difference gone wrong. So that's the first principle, then, that we're to take from this. We need to remember. Remember what we all share through Jesus. 
And remember that we're in a spiritual battle through trusting in the blood of Jesus. We can survive. We can, can come through. And depending on the help of Jesus, we can and we must stand firm. And flowing on from this then comes our second principle. We need, spiritually speaking, at least, to relax. Now, I have to be honest, relax is not a word that we read in that passage. I don't think we read it anywhere in the Bible. It's quite a modern word. But it's a pretty good translation, I think, of what Paul is saying here. He starts with those words of reassurance that the Lord is near. God is not distant from us, unknowable, unreachable. Rather, he loves us and he's with us by his spirit. He understands everything about our situations. Jesus even said, didn't he, every hair in your head is numbered. And yet, despite knowing all of that, he loves us and he wants to help us. And he cares deeply about how any uh, difference of opinion in a church, in our lives, is resolved. And so Paul can write these three astonishing words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, to which this promise is attached, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what are we to make of this? I like to think of it, or I tend to think of it like this. We have our part to play, and God has his. Our part is first to ask God this, which I tend to use Psalm 139, the last uh, couple of verses, to, as a prayer, as the right starting point in coming to God, seeking to have his unity, his joy inside us. So Psalm 139, it finishes with these words, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It was wisdom then when it was coined probably by David many, many centuries earlier. But when Paul wrote it too, when Paul said that we need to invite God to show us what's wrong in us, invite him to show us what's causing anxiety in us. And when we do that, we can bring it to him and we can find peace. So that's why Paul went on to talk about prayer and petition. Now, we hear lots about petitions, don't we, at the moment? Just to reassure you, he's not saying if you've got something you want God to do for you, you have to get thousands or millions of signatures and send it to God. All he's saying is that you need to make your request. Petition is an old-fashioned word. That means ask God to help. And yet the consequences of doing that, when we do ask God to help, are astonishing. It says there, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. What is that saying? Well, it's saying first, not that as you ask God to intervene, it gets even more complicated, that the divisions between people become spiritualized and then with even more strength of feeling become even harder to resolve. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, he's saying a miracle will take place. 
God will bring a peace which actually can't be fully understood. All we know about it is that when we seek it, God gives it to us and miraculously and so very peacefully, everything feels lighter as a result. Have you experienced that? Have you brought a situation to God and experienced that peace that comes upon you, even though we don't know why or how? But we know that God did it. He loves to do it, and he'll do it again when we ask him to. So it's a peace that comes from knowing God is in control, that he's in charge now, and that he can see a way through a situation even if we can't. And the guarding of our hearts and minds that the passage speaks of is a guarding against anger, against trusting in our own strength, against starting to ridicule or hate our opponents. In short, against any negative emotion at all. Whether it's seeking justice as we see it being done at the expense of the other. No, rather it's a peace that comes from knowing that we were all lost We're all sinners who were lost and are saved by grace. We were separated from the God who made us because of our self-centeredness and our pride. But now, having recognized our lostness, which only Jesus could resolve for us, we can grasp the glorious truth that we're all forgiven, we're washed clean, we're loved and now declared innocent by the one who took the punishment on the cross for us. For the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a great leveler. It's the reason it lies behind so many of the great resolutions of conflict around the world taking place. I was thinking about South Africa, how it seemed to be the conversion of Nelson Mandela and and F.W. de Klerk led to that trust in each other that saw apartheid ended and that country coming together. It was Christians on both sides of the, of the divide in Northern Ireland who played such a major part in allowing peace to come to that place. And we hope and pray it will stay like that. And likewise, in America, the civil rights uh, struggles in the 1950s and 60s, it was clearly the faith of Martin Luther King and others who helped make the two one and brought the country together in that way. We need to push on. We've we've thought of two things so far. We need to remember and we need to relax. The final principle then I want to highlight is this. We need to reflect. We need to reflect based on the principle that if we renounce division and turn our back on prejudice, hate and anger, something needs to fill the vacuum. Something needs to take its place. And that's what we're to reflect on. And Paul wrote it down for us in this book of Philippians, in my mind, in two of the most wonderful verses of Scripture that have ever been written. Let me read them to you again. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the antidote to division. It's an awareness of and a commitment to a higher 
level of consciousness, a tapping into a deeper well of goodness and love, which renders the usual human analysis and emotion around division actually inadequate. This is goodness and love. And this is about understanding each other. This is about thinking and reflecting on everything that is good, that noble, that beautiful and true and allowing it to bring us peace. Now, I remember when I was about 14, 15, I got really interested in politics. I studied it. I used to read the newspapers every day. And I used to make sure that I always read The Telegraph and I always read The Guardian, which might seem strange. The reason I did that was because I knew that they had very different perspectives. And I thought if I read them both, that, that would help me to arrive at the truth. That would help me to arrive at what was balanced, what was fair in terms of what, how I analyze things going on. I still like politics. Can't say I'm enjoying it very much at the moment. But actually, there was something in, I think, what I was doing by making myself look at different perspectives on the same issues. And it reflects a belief that actually, when we reflect on virtue, when we reflect on the potential for goodness in the human heart, we can discern a pathway to unity. If we actually assume that there's something good in everyone, as well as, of course, as sin, and as one church member who has different political views to me put it when I chatted to them a few months ago, she said this, everyone just wants what's best for the country. We just don't agree on what the best way is. Such a wise comment, and that is the reality. And actually, when we reflect on goodness and truth, on being noble, on being pure, it helps us to arrive at what is the common good that we can rally around, around which we can find peace. And I wonder whether maybe early in the week when Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar walked around uh, under the trees in the wedding venue somewhere on the Wirral, I think it was, something happened, didn't it? It haven't yet yielded the fruit that we hope it will bring. But it unlocked a trust and a determination to see mutual interests and shared humanity win through. Maybe it was the dawning realization, too, that there really was no alternative, that neither party had anything to gain from dug-in positions and long-repeated dismissal of the other's motives and interests. It was the moment that suddenly allowed the politicians and the people to again believe it will still be a long and treacherous journey, but we can get there. Let's keep praying for a peaceful resolution in our nation. And whenever there is a problem in our church, we're there too. So let's finish. What then, as Christians, is our role in this time of division, in this season of political turmoil? Well, it must surely be this, to live out the teaching that we've just read about, to live out the teaching of Jesus himself, who said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To pursue peace is a worthy and glorious political endeavor. And it's through the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, that it can be found. For though we were divided from the God who made us, separated from him by sin, he loved us too much to leave us there. Love triumphed when God's own Son, our Redeemer, 
took our sin upon his shoulders. It's the great leveler that for Christians makes us as one. There's no pride in accepting that forgiveness. Just humility and the desperation of the wayward younger son who having gone his own way and lost everything found forgiveness, love and restoration in his gracious father's arms. So as we seek to pray for this nation and indeed for ourselves and as you seek to be peacemakers in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our communities and in the country, working together for God's purposes, let's remember our sinfulness. Let's remember God's grace and faithfulness. Let's relax knowing that we can bring all our anxieties to him. And let's reflect on what goodness, love, wisdom, truth, and living rightly really means. Amen. What we're going to do now then for the rest of the service, I think, is, is to try and put these things into practice. The first thing we're going to do, and I'd love to invite the band just to come up now, is we're going to do what that passage told us to do. When it said rejoice, when it encourages us to, to reflect on those things, all that is good and true and noble and pure, it's saying look upwards, look to the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who didn't leave us in a mess, separated, but came to win us back, the God himself, Jesus, dying for us on the cross. So we're going to stand now and reflect our hunger for God, our need for him, our dependence on him as the source of life and love and unity. And then after we've done that, we're going to share the peace together, not as we normally do at the end of the service, but within the service as an expression of putting into practice what we've read here. So the band are going to lead us now. We're going to uh, quickly sing uh, two short songs.